And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. You know what they say, tenth time's a charm. Is this going to be a smash and grab for Brighton? They've never beaten Manchester City in the WSL. Man City had 35 shots and nothing to show for it, putting them down in sixth. We're now a quarter of the way through the WSL. So what does the data tell us about this season's surprise packages? Is this the new normal or just a blip? I'm Sophie Penny and from The Athletic, this is Full Time Europe. They have delivered a crushing blow to Manchester City's WSL title hopes. I'm with The Athletic's women's football editor, Chloe Morgan, and The Athletic's data analyst, Mark Carey. Hello to you both. Hello. Hiya. Later, we'll be talking about Megan Rapinoe's final game. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to get someone. I, we're not going to get anyone quite like Megan Rapinoe. But first, let's get into the stats behind the WSL shocks. We'll leave Chelsea, Man United and Arsenal out of this one and give the attention to some other clubs for a change. Let's start with Man City this weekend. Chloe, it didn't go to plan for them, did it? No, I think uh, when everyone saw this fixture coming up, I think um, everyone was expecting that it was going to be a pretty, you know, comprehensive Man City win. But then saying that off the back of last weekend, obviously uh, Brighton picking up the, the draw against Man United, they look to be on the up. And Melissa Phillips, I think, seems to have sort of turn the side around a bit this season. Um, but it looked like, obviously, you know, within the, thir- the first 20 seconds or so, you had uh, Chloe Kelly striking the woodwork and you thought, OK, this is only going to go one way. I mean, what what a great start to, to the first half. You couldn't have asked for it for a, um, for a better start. But I think as you sort of went into the game, obviously, I think Man City did dominate, but there were definitely points when they looked a bit shaky at the back. I think... Um, Sometimes there's those games of the WSL that you think for all the will in the world, the, the ball is just allergic to the back of the net. And it just looked... A, like a force field. <laughs> yeah, like an invisible force field. And, um, you know, obviously they had Sophie Bagley in goal and she's been absolutely outstanding this season. So it was always going to be a tough ask. I mean, you're going to have to slot it in the corners to kind of get around the reach that, that she's able to achieve. But yeah, it just was not City's day for all the will in the world. You know, 35 shots um, taken and 13 of those on target. But to me, I think um, they weren't clinical. They just weren't. I mean, they were getting into good areas. I mean, you know, Chloe Kelly, we saw getting into the box. We saw Lauren Hemp getting into the box um, towards the latter stages. We saw uh, Bunny Shaw, you know, there was some beautiful crosses going into her and heading it, but, you know, skimming skimming the crossbar. And it's, um, so you can't really blame Gareth Taylor because the opportunities were there. The, The strategy was the right one, but they they just weren't converting their chances and, and it's just not good enough. This is what I want to understand because obviously it was a big result, City unbeaten at home since November 2021 and they had the shots and the same thing last weekend against Arsenal, 17 shots and they still lost 2-1. So that's where we need to bring Mark in. Do the stats behind their attack show that we need to be worried? Like, What's going wrong there? 
Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't often be too worried with taking 35 shots. I think sometimes you can't <laughs> legislate, as you guys have said, for a bit of bad luck. Some poor finishing at times, which happens. And I think it's it's something that I've written on quite extensively from, <laughs> from a data perspective that you've got to acknowledge that it's early on in the season and things that, you know, the pack does shuffle quite a bit and you get these sort of anomalies. So with just six games played, you think there's plenty of time for things to level themselves out from a f- performance perspective, but also from obviously a statistical perspective. And I think we place a lot of importance on the, the table in whatever league really early on when you know you've got to wait for everyone to at least play each other once and then you can start to take a bit more of a a reliable look at it but I think to to use you know City's example it does feel like a perfect storm of bad luck and some some poor finishing particularly against Brighton I think there was a few sort of back post finishes where it was just in your head you kind of think about the next step already you think well that's gone the ball's gone to the back post it's definitely going to be tapped in here and there's a couple of occasions where it just got away from uh, from a couple of the players but the expected goals, you know, the, the quality of chances all looked okay. City's uh, expected goals there, XG in that game against Brighton was 2.5 compared to Brighton's one. So, you know, nine times out of 10, you'd expect them to win that based on the quality of chances they created. So, as I say, a bit of bad luck. I think I think the Arsenal game was quite interesting because while City had more shots than Arsenal, the quality of the chances that, that City created weren't quite as high as Arsenal. So Arsenal had a higher XG in that game, which I thought was quite interesting. But... Yeah, City worked the ball into some fantastic areas, particularly against Brighton. But as Chloe said, you just can't sometimes legislate for the fact that it was just a bit of poor finishing. I think it's a bit of a surprise that they're not gelling quite as well. Or they've had these last two results, given their squad has stayed pretty much the same, hasn't it, Chloe, since last summer? They've only brought in one summer signing in Jill Rord. So Gareth Taylor essentially had a season to set his team in place already. I mean, this is probably one of their better starts to the season, if you look at it sort of over the past two or three years. I mean, last season, again, not a great start. They they weren't winning or picking up points that they are expected to the season before, exactly the same. And then they seem to be a team that sort of grows into the sort of season. And then by about January time, they seem to be hitting full form. I mean, before that, you kind of had the excuses of, you know, not, not being at full capacity, having a few injuries and stuff. But this time, I think the excuses are wearing a little bit thin, because like you said, I mean, with only one person coming in to kind of gel with the, the side... And, and a, a definitely a player who obviously, you know, has played in the WSL, has loads of WSL experience, you know, has played with these players at international and domestic level before, you would be expecting that things would be ticking over a little bit better than they are. But I think, like Mark said, I mean, we are at the very outset of the season. So, and I think we can't be too concerned with, you know, the top four clubs, you know, losing points at this stage, because I think it just goes to show again, it sort of comes back to that point of how competitive the league has now got. So, I think even though, you know, we can say, OK, well, Chelsea only lost two games last season and that's the kind of standard for like where the title will be won. I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see those top sides, you know, dropping points or losing games that we traditionally wouldn't have expected them to because the competitiveness has just been raised. I think that's an interesting point that, you know, it is true that no team has ever won the league having lost more than two games since it began in 2011. So are you saying this could be the season where that all changes? Yeah, and I I kind of want to see that. Yeah, I want to, you know, turn on a game that's, you know, Man United, Everton or Arsenal, you know, Leicester. And, you know, even that, that Leicester game, uh, there was one point where you thought, you know, Leicester are going to walk away with the points here. I mean, that's that's the excitement of the WSL. That's the drama that you want. And it makes it just such a fascinating product. So I think you want that situation. You don't want a, a top four that you just know, oh, it's Arsenal versus whoever that they're going to win. Man United versus whoever they're going to win. So, yeah, I think it's... 
it's good. Not for them, but it's good for us to watch. <laughs> a definite surprise this season has been Aston Villa as well. We can't talk about shocks and surprises without bringing them up, can we? They had the Golden Boot winner last season, Rachel Daly. And now they're second from bottom only on goal difference. I mean, what has happened there? We're not worried about Man City. That's kind of what we've we've said. But are we worried about Aston Villa? Is that where they're there to stay? Mark, what does your analysis tell you? Again, I go back to the, the start of the, the season being that I think it's fair to say that they have had quite a few tricky fixtures. And to Chloe's point, every game now is a tricky fixture. But you think about... Okay, granted, they finished above Liverpool and Spurs last season, but they've they've played Arsenal, they played United, they played Chelsea in the opening weeks, and you know they they beat Bristol in their their most recent game, and they haven't played the likes of Brighton, Leicester, Everton yet. Who you'd expect them to to win, if not get points from. So, again, I, using the data, I'm always wary to sort of calm things down a little bit when you know the narrative can sometimes slip away and people worry. You know, is this team pulling away or falling behind? And I think that. You know, with a level head, you can start to see that there's context as to why these teams are performing the way they are potentially. But I think it's still fair to say that their defence is a, a little bit leaky. Only Brighton have conceded more shots than than Villa's 115 so far. And Rachel Daly being a, another kind of key narrative here, she's she's not getting the, the chances that she was last season. We know that she was scoring for fun. I think she overperformed her expected goals more than anyone last season but I thought it was interesting just in terms of not necessarily her goal scoring but the quality of chances that she's getting in the first place so I took a look at it and last season she had a non-penalty expected goals per 90 of 0.5 so quite simply she's getting chances that are worthy of a goal one every two games last season and currently that's 0.25 so it's halved to getting the chances that are worthy of a goal once every four games this is non-penalty as well because I know that she scored um, a penalty this season, but it's it's not so much her conversion in as much as just getting into those positions in the first place. And I think we can speak about why those reasons might be. So thinking about strength in both boxes, right? We've we've got maybe underperformance from from Rachel Daly and a little bit leaky in defence. That sort of already does explain why that might be, but the context of fixture difficulty definitely have to factor into that. I think one of the reasons why she might not be getting such quality chances could be that Kenza Dali was out. She was out for the start of the season after coming back from the World Cup with a knock, made her return on November the 8th in the Continental League Cup against Sheffield United. Chloe, do you think that could have had an impact on Rachel Daly's chances and maybe Villa's goal scoring? Do you think it could all turn around now? I think what this Bristol City game kind of showed was that even though, despite the adversity, despite you know getting into a bit of a rut with these losses, there was there was a spark on that game. There was a kind of we need to get this. This is an absolute do or die. And I think a lot of people were very concerned, obviously, about um, Carla Ward and her position at the squad and thinking, okay, is the pressure going to be on her because if she doesn't deliver, you know, in a game that's essentially with you know a club that everyone sort of predicted or, or pitched to maybe you know enter the the championship back again this season things are desperately desperately wrong so but I do think also you've got a factor in that they do seem to be going in the right direction so I was looking over kind of shots on targets and you know chances created and you know from the Man U game they were having nine shots three on target for the Liverpool game they got 13 shots four on target Spurs uh, 14 shots seven on target and then Bristol 17 shots six on target so there is a very nice little trajectory forming and now it's sort of accumulated in this win so hopefully onwards and upwards we'll have to wait and see I mean 
You spoke, Mark, about their defensive system and whether they were leaking goals. I mean, they leaked goals last season as well. They conceded 37 goals from an expected goals conceded of 24.6, but they had Rachel Daly scoring so much that it didn't really matter. So I think it'll be interesting to see what saves them, whether it is, you know, just trying to score more of those chances or or whether they do tighten up their defence. So we've had some potential underperformers who we've decided we don't need to worry too much about, maybe. Next up, it's the overperformers, Tottenham. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. You're listening to Full Time Europe from The Athletic. Tottenham are fourth right now, but around this time last season, they went nine games without a win. So are the new Spurs here to stay or does the quality of opposition, like we said with Aston Villa, distort the table a little bit? What do you guys think? I mean, Spurs are obviously a side that I've seen go from the championship into the WSL not too long ago. And this is now their fourth season in the WSL. And they're a club that has seen a lot of change. I mean, they've changed grounds. They've changed managers. This will be the third manager they've had since entering the WSL. They've changed players. I think there's only three of the original players uh, since making that jump from the championship to the WSL. Um, and they're youngsters. I mean, you've got Jess Naz there. Kit Graham's only just come back from injuries sort of the, the OGs of, of the squad. But I think those kind of big changes take a lot of time to bed in. And I know they sort of there was a lot of resources and kind of um, new gyms and things like that being built. So I think now you get to a point of, you know, you're not in the relegation battle that much. I mean, they were briefly last season, but now this is kind of like a consolidation year. And the kind of disruptor role that we thought Aston Villa were going to play this season it now seems to have switched maybe over to, to Spurs. So, yeah, I think, um, I mean, Wilhelm has done an amazing job. I think he, he seems to have brought them all together. They seem to be all on the same page and firing on all cylinders. So they're, to me, they've not necessarily been the most exciting squad to watch in previous seasons, but I actually can't wait for Spurs to play every weekend, which is which is unusual for me, actually. <laughs> Even though they're your former club. <laughs> Even, despite that. <laughs> Mark Martha Thomas, we can't talk about Tottenham without talking about her. WSL top scorer on six goals. Why has she been so effective this season for Spurs? I suppose the most obvious is that she's getting regular game time, right? Like she played, I think she played 20 games last season, but only started once, whereas she's got, I think, six starts uh, across the, the whole of this season. So I think you can't underestimate the importance of rhythm. I mean, Chloe will be able to, to, to tell us that, you know, the importance of rhythm and consistent playing to, to get that match fitness, that match sharpness. Um, so I think there's, there's certainly that. Her hat-trick against Aston Villa recently was incredible. The, the finishes from distance, granted she was basically given one of them. I think it was the, the first one that was basically handed to her. But she had to finish and, and chip it over the goalkeeper, which is a fantastic finish from distance. Ball down the left side though and Thomas is in. She's beaten Rachel Corsi and Martha Thomas has a hat-trick. Beautifully finished by the Scottish striker. 
that's a, another factor that she seems to be shooting more per 90 minutes. So again, looked into the numbers. She's averaging 4.4 shots per 90 this season compared to 3.4 uh, last season. So she's taking, obviously you can do the mass one shot more per per 90 minutes and you, you aggregate that across the course of a season. That's that's a lot more opportunities and you know breeds a lot more confidence. Yeah, I think Marcel Thomas is one of those, I think she's been probably part of the reason that I do find Spurs such an exciting outfit. And I think what we didn't see from her last season, obviously being on Man United, not getting those minutes, kind of being benched a lot of the time. I mean, the potential was there. I mean, apart from he must be feeling like Mark Skinner's kicking himself slightly. Um, I can only imagine what kind of bargain um, Spurs managed to get for her in the, uh, in the summer transfer window. But I think like Mark was saying, it was the chance creation from her. And I think she's kind of, I've got nothing to lose. With Bethany England out for the sort of, foreseeable with that hip surgery she's now kind of got this no pressure it's on me I'm gonna do this I'm gonna want to keep my shirt not too sure when Beth's coming back but by god I'm gonna give it a good a good shot so yeah she's definitely um the sort of one to watch and I wouldn't be surprised if she does pick up that golden boot next year that would be a big shout if she did absolutely huge wouldn't it Martha Thomas here she is we're gonna have to wrap this discussion up here it's been a whistle stop tour of all the of all the surprise packages in the WSL this season. Obviously, there are many other teams in contention and I'm sure we'll come to them throughout the season. But in the meantime, thank you so much to Mark Kerry and Chloe Morgan. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Next up, we rotate in studio to bid adieu to a global icon. Megan Rapinoe's farewell party was spoilt by Gotham FC as Ali Krieger took the limelight, winning America's NWSL Championship 2-1. But Rapinoe's legacy goes beyond her results. Into the near post. It's oh! in! That's the corner has gone in! Megan Rapino knows how to play. Megan Rapino of the Seattle Reign took a knee during the national anthem, supporting Kaepernick's recent stance against racial injustice. I'm not going to the White House. No, I'm not going to the White House. Rapino might go all the way! A superb goal from Megan Rapinoe. The face of the tournament scores the first goal of the final. Megan Rapinoe. So Megan Rapinoe's football career is over. The Ballon d'Or winner with two World Cup trophies and an Olympic gold medal is a global icon who's played in the US, France and Australia. And now she's hung up her boots after her 11th season with O.L. Reign in the NWSL. Meg Linehan, the Athletic Senior US Women's Soccer reporter, is with me. Meg, it wasn't the fairy tale ending, was it, that Rapino and her team hoped for? Not so much. Not so much. It was... You know, I think we had this kind of amazing, incredible narrative heading into the NWSL championship because you have Megan Rapinoe's final game. You have Allie Krieger's final game with Gotham FC. These are two legends of the games. I mean, these are two players that were so important, both to their respective NWSL teams, but also to the U.S. Women's National Team over the year. I mean, you go back to 2011 World Cup and both of these players played such a big role in that game against Brazil. So there's some real history there. I've been at basically every single Megan Rapinoe send-off game this calendar year, right? She she announces her retirement ahead of the World Cup out in California in July, I want to say. This year is a blur, but go to the World Cup. Obviously, that, that ending to Sweden, not what she expects. Megan Rapinoe to give them quite the advantage. What will she do here? Rapinoe, no! 
She has her send-off game in Chicago. Yes, a good win, sure. Has a, a send-off game in Seattle, closing out their regular season at home at Lumen Field. Record crowd. They get a draw, but not like a real result. And then you have this final game, and it is two minutes, 25 seconds in when she goes down with an injury. Really well. Oh, there's a problem here for Megan Rapino. And this is a real concern for the legend in her final professional game. So much to You know, just kind of an immediate Achilles injury. Knew it right off the bat. Told Roosevelt when Roosevelt comes running over, I did my Achilles. Rose was just like, what? Are you, ki- are you kidding? Um, she said after the game, I, I wrote it until the wheels fell off, which does feel very true. Like this was a year, I think, where you think it's going to maybe be this victory lap right, of like this incredible career, and that is not how this went. But as she said, she's gotten a lot of endings over the years, and this was an ending, not the one I think anybody expected to have an end in an Achilles injury two and a half minutes into your your final game and knowing that you have to have surgery probably by the end of the week and go through rehab and you're just a normal person, as she said. So, yeah, it's just no one... No one could have seen this coming. It must be so tough for her to take that, especially after, as you mentioned, the disappointment in the World Cup, skying that penalty against uh, against Sweden. I wanted to ask about that. Going into retirement with the rehab, that must be really tough for her to take. Did she say anything about it? What was she saying after the game? I mean, I don't know if you'd have access to the club's facilities. Yeah, no, she was just like, I got to do it as a normal person. Like, I'm not going to have, I mean, and to be fair, she's going to have great medical care, I'm sure. But you're just like, yeah, it's like when I when I broke my leg, like, I'm just doing it. I'm going to physical therapy, right? Like, you're just... Imagine being in the waiting room with Megan Rapino. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I think it is a very different life. And, um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure the U.S. Women's National Team and, and the rain will support her. I guess it depends also on, you know, her and Sue Bird have this new place in New York City. So, I mean, plenty of resources. Yeah, exactly. What was she saying after the game, though? Was she upbeat or was she really downtrodden or? I mean, what what is so fascinating about Megan Rapinoe is that she really uses humor, right? Like she really... She was laughing on the field when this happened, right? Which it feels, I think, to probably most normal people, like, what are you doing? And and that was the same thing when she skied that penalty, right? Of just like, I think that is a, a way of maybe protecting herself from the bigger emotions in the moment a little bit of both of these things happening are so out of the realm of possibility of like normal thought, right? Like Megan Rapinoe with that penalty kick and just, so there is this element of both disbelief, but humor where... You know, she's making Rose Lavelle laugh in the press conference. They they had come through the mix zone, Rose Lavelle full of emotions, terrible loss. Megan Rapinoe goes down with that injury. I mean, the emotions were just like everywhere after that game. And then Pino is the one making her laugh. So, yeah, it just, it's just up because like six minutes in, eat my Achilles. I mean, what the That is just such a reflection of her personality where, you know, she came out to the bench she told us after she was just like, no, I had to I had to support my team. Laurel Ivory, the backup goalkeeper, has her like <laughs> koala style on her back, right? Cheering on the goal. And so I think that is such a good reflection of Megan Rapinoe is that she she has that selflessness and that ability to to be the team player, right? Which I sometimes I don't think the public fully gives her credit for. But then 
I think about her final answer in the mix zone was about the league that she's leaving. And one of her final things was like, I'm a proud gay aunt, like looking on at these kids who are going to take this thing that we built and make it better. And that to me is Megan Rapinoe in a nutshell. I think that legacy point is really interesting, both on and off the field. Obviously, a lot of people will be talking about her her activism for LGBTQ plus people, taking the knee in 2016 in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, fighting for equal pay, all that mess with Donald Trump on Twitter about going yeah. to the White House. I, there's so much of the pitch that she is such an icon for. But I wanted to ask you what her legacy is on the pitch, because I think probably fewer people are talking about that. Yeah, I, I keep going back to Lindsey Horan when it was Megan Rapinoe's final game for the U.S. Women's National Team in Chicago. And Lindsey Horan saying that Megan Rapinoe was one of, honestly, like two players. It was her and Tobin Heath that, that Lindsey was talking about that felt like they had made a space for her on this team, that they were these creative players who wanted to be on the ball, who wanted to control the ball, who wanted to like be the person with the pass, right? That was the type of footballer that Lindsey Horan looked to and then had access to both of them <laughs> to like be her basically football mentors. And that is the part where, I, I mean, I sat down with Megan in Seattle earlier this year to talk about like her game and her words, right? And listening to her talking about how much she loves passing was just like a, a religious experience for a little bit. Did she say anything specific about her passing? Like any passes she likes best? I mean, it's she. the thing that she said that she loves the most is when you have that pass that just like basically unlocks a defense, right? Like you get the ball through this channel and you know like, oh, it's gone past three people who need to touch that in order to stop it. And you've managed to get it right to the foot of probably someone like Rose Lavelle and then they're off to the races, mm -hmm. right? And that to her is... I think the bigger moment than scoring a goal like that to her is the thing that she loved doing on the field. And when you think about some of her biggest moments, you think about 2011, it is that pass. Describe it to us for people who didn't see it. Yeah, 2011 World Cup against Brazil. They're hanging on for dear life. It's extra time. And Megan Rapinoe's left foot connects with the ball and somehow finds Abby Wampak's head by some miracle. I feel like it is probably one of the most famous goal calls that we have here in the U.S. Uh, with Ian Dark just like absolutely screaming. Rapinoe gets the crossing. It's towards Wampak. I mean, it was, I think, like 120 plus two or what like. I mean, it was right at the dying last moments. play. Of that. Yeah. I mean, it was just truly they were out of time until they weren't. But that is a pass where it's just they're the ones that feel like a small miracle. In that case, I think she would fully admit to that it was just like a, a Hail Mary sort of thing. But the ones that feel intentional of like, I can see the space if I put the right texture on the ball. If I get it to curve at just the right bend, I will put it perfectly at someone's feet and they will be they will be gone like no one else can touch them. I think it's really yeah. interesting to hear about that on the pitch because you don't get as much attention to it because obviously she's built such a huge platform off the pitch with all her comments. I did actually want to talk to you a bit about that platform. How do you think she made 
that status for herself that's so much bigger than women's football? I think there's a there's a few parts to it because yes, the media is absolutely part of it, and it was very. She addressed that in her final press conference before the game of just. I love interacting with the media. And she said, at first she was like, I've kind of weaponized the media a little bit. She was like, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> yeah, I, I have leveraged the media, which I think is fair of just knowing how much power there is in telling a story and getting that story out, right? That's a huge part of it. And the other part of it for me is that I think she has understood that she has this role of being a shield for other people. I mean, you brought up kneeling in 2016 and I think about what Crystal Dunn has said about that of, I felt like I could not do it, but Rapino did, right? Because she knew that she kind of had some power on this team that she could, she could maybe take that, that action. And at that point there were real consequences, right? And like, we know what those consequences were. She wasn't called up to the team for a while. There was a whole Internal discussion. There was a U.S. soccer bylaw that was put into effect about kneeling. So, I mean, there were real repercussions for Megan Rapinoe at a time where those were painful and she did not know her place on the team. So I think the fact that she is willing to take those risks, no matter what, is also a part of building that platform of taking big swings and knowing I've got to do something here, but also a, a willingness to not be perfect of just like, there is a, a power in saying something and she might not always get at 100% right, but knowing, okay, there's a moment here where I can say something and it will carry and it will build this bigger platform for other people to get up on. She's talked a lot over the years about not being in the scarcity mindset and trying to, to come out of this place of abundance. And that is, I think, the heart of that platform that she has built. What does she mean by that? the sense of we have to kind of all be in this thing together. We all get rewarded if we are actually thinking about how to be intentional with the platform, with the sport, with the power that we have because of it. And trying to to navigate the world of like, I got to get mine first, rather than how can I kind of do the maximum good. This sense of nothing is really worth doing if we're not doing it out of this place of abundance, and a place of joy. That, to me, is the Megan Rapino legacy. Yeah, I don't I don't know if we're ever going to get someone. I, we're not going to get anyone quite like Megan Rapino. You've been covering her for such a long time, and I've read a lot of your articles on The Athletic about her with her saying about how much her journey has affected you as well and everyone in the media. And I imagine there's many fans listening to this who will have been affected by her journey. So I just wanted to end by asking you if you had a good story or a story that stands out of your interactions with her along the journey. So I think there are kind of just a lot of very small little moments of making, <laughs> trying to like not laugh during a press conference or you know, I think her just giving a great quote and knowing that she gave a great quote, like in 2019, when she was like, you can't win without gays on your team. That's just science right there. And just like knowing what she was doing and just being like, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome for this gift. But I, one of the things that I've always really appreciated about her is that she's always been very generous with her time. And she's always been very appreciative, I think, when she's gone through a lot of really tough stuff. Um Sorry, I'm getting emotional. That's all right. Take your time. <laughs> um, but this World Cup was especially hard. 
So I think um, having to write that column that I had to write after the World Cup and knowing just like the very baseless attacks that she was getting. Sorry, I really did not see that one coming. Um, just knowing that there was a lot of very, very, in some ways, like, actively harmful feedback coming her way. And knowing that it had nothing to do about the soccer or who she was as a person, just like her as this symbol. And I think knowing that there was an appreciation of that defense really did mean a lot to me. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It, no, it is. It is really emotional. Everything she's had to deal with, and it seems like yeah, it's, it's really touched you, and it will have touched a lot of people listening. I'm, I'm really sure about that. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted after the game like, I truly don't think I have a job without Megan Rapinoe or Ali Krieger in 2011 because 2011 really was that moment that built pretty much, I think, everything that we are seeing in the U.S. right now. Like, that generation of the U.S. Women's National Team really launched both the NWSL as a league, but also you don't have 2015 or 2019 without 2011. Even though, that you know, they eventually fall to Japan in the final, that, <laughs> that surge of popularity from that game, you don't have that kind of reinvestment into the U.S. Women's National Team from a, a public perception point of view. 2011 is really, I think, a, a major, major point in this sport and probably honestly in a, a lot of ways more important to the actual U.S. Women's National Team than 2015 or 2019 were. They've really built something. And I think you can feel that, not just on the field, but yeah, everyone who's who's involved or yep. who's ever seen what she's done. So a yeah. massive hats off to Megan Rapinoe. Thank you so much for joining me, Meg Linehan. Thank you for having me. You can read more about Megan Rapinoe and the NWSL Championship Final on The Athletic. Get a subscription today for just £1.99 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com slash WSL. You can also catch all our previous episodes on the Full-Time Europe feed, including last week's show about Emma Hayes being set to become the US Women's National Team Manager. We'd love you to also do a quick rating and a review while you're there and do hit follow. You can also send us an email on our new email address, fte at theathletic.com. That's fte at theathletic.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.